As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. You never should have one scandal. One scandal, people can take a lot of time to dissect and pay attention to. But if you have a thousand scandals, if you say something insane every day, you will constantly turn the media into a herd of cats and you've got a laser pointer and they are just chasing it like crazy and nobody can focus. Yeah. Nobody can focus on the things that matter. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I quite enjoyed my conversation with Sarah Longwell, a partner at Berman and & Company and a leader among concerned Republicans who do not like Trump. She's in what she calls meetings of sad Republicans frequently, the notable ones. Sarah has a very good story, in some obvious ways quite different than many of the other guests on the podcast since she came up on the right, but also a recognizable career path analogous to those on the progressive side. We found many places for meetings of the mind, and she's well worth your listen. Sarah is working on a number of projects of interest to the resistance to Trump, including recruiting a serious primary challenger on the Republican side and Republicans for the rule of law. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Sarah Longwell of Berman and Company. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. So I'm Sarah Longwell. I am a lot of things. I am a partner at a DC communications firm where I've worked for almost 15 years. And then What's the firm's name? It's called Berman and & Company. And it is, I think, well known on the right for, for being a firm that takes on uh, a lot of issues. We've uh, done a lot of work on, on labor issues and... I just happen to be an expert in alcohol policy would be something that I work on. And so we, we've done a lot of work over the years for the sort of restaurant retail industries. How big of a firm is that? It's about 40 people. Uh-huh. So it's big-ish. And, and what sort of clients are typical for you? There's two different sides to the firm. We've got a, a series of sort of advocacy organizations that we manage. But then a lot of our clients are think tanks around town or think tanks across the country, usually on the, the right-leaning side. All kinds of people. I mean, people who are, yeah, looking for communications help on a variety of issues. How did you enter the world of, of communications and politics? You went to Kenyon or something? Is that yeah. The uh, this is actually a decently funny story. So I went to Kenyon College in Ohio. I was a political science major. And when I graduated, I immediately got a job 
at a place called the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which is a pretty conservative think tank in Delaware. I'd done a couple years there, and I worked with uh, a woman that some people may remember named Christine O'Donnell, who ultimately ran for Senate during the Tea Party wave and took out a sort of moderate Republican in Mike Castle in Delaware, and she sort of became famous for her I am not a witch ad. But she was running communications for this think tank, and the relationship between them went south, and they were looking for somebody to fill the role. And I was just a kid, but I'd been there a couple years. I was really interested in communications work. And so I said, hey, how about me? And they said, okay, sure, you can do this. And um, and so I took over communications there. The first thing that I had to do was they they had a publishing imprint, a publishing company and called ISI Books. And the first book that that they published uh, when I took over the job was Rick Santorum's book, It Takes a Family. And so it was meant to be, this is 2004. So Rick Santorum is a senator from Pennsylvania, my home state, and is being thought of as a person who can sort of viably be the next, the heir apparent to George W. Bush. Like He is being thought of as a, as a presidential contender. And so his book tour was a big deal. Like I traveled with him. He went on The Daily Show, had an extremely long argument with Jon Stewart over gay marriage. And I was sort of just standing right off to the side. These are the years of me coming out, like coming out to my family, coming out to my friends. And I would say that was like really between 2002, 2004, right out of college is like, that's when I'm sort of trying to break it to everybody at the time, right? So you think about 2005 is the year that Massachusetts became the first state to pass gay marriage. And so you're looking at 2004 is like the crescendoing of of time uh, where the opposition is really at its zenith and they're winning, right? There's a lot of state referendums that have passed, banning gay marriage at the time. Um, it is a major topic of conversation, maybe the most biggest sort of social conversation that's happening at the time. And so it was extremely stressful to be coming out and to be spending all my time around very conservative sort of evangelicals. The topic of conversation for Rick Santorum almost everywhere he went was the gay marriage one, because he had also made some comments like right around that time about bestiality, sort of relating LGBT lifestyle to to bestiality. And, and those comments had exploded and Dan Savage had done this whole thing where he they could Google bomb at the time and they had uh, made it so when you Googled Santorum, a very sort of gross definition came up. I remember up. that, yes. yeah. Um, so this is the context, right? So this is sort of like the world of me as a 24-year-old and uh, just, just walking around the country with Rick Santorum. There's gay protesters everywhere and I'm sort of coming out. And so that, that kind of uh, – Did Rick know? No, and everybody always asks me that. And I, but I'll, I'll tell you, one of the crazier things that happened. Uh, so this is before we all have just like computers in our pockets. But we were at a meeting, and everybody was like pretty upset. And I, I didn't really understand what was going on. They were telling us, you know, you guys need to keep your personal lives personal. So I, I got back to a computer, and I was googling it, and, and his communications director, who I knew had been sort of outed. This was something that was going on at the time. They made a movie about it called Outrage, but it was basically people who went around outing gay Republicans, which I think is a vicious and terrible thing to do. But they had outed Rick Santorum's 
actual communications director. In the meeting, I thought they were talking about me. Like I was like sitting there sweating through my suit, uh, which is funny because like no one cared about the 24-year-old who was basically carrying the luggage. Like I was running the communication store, but like I was 24. I wasn't, I was carrying books. Like, um, I mean, I was doing it sort of, yeah, on the publication side. So anyway, no one cared about me. But but Robert, like, I mean, he was on TV and the senator was on TV with him, to his credit, defending him and their friendship. But that was also kind of like it for me with with doing sort of that side of the conservative movement. I, I just it was it became untenable. I never said anything to Rick's and Norm, but I did. I was I was at an event, the last event that I did. There were always gay protesters at the events, and there were two women there, two moms, and they had their sort of twelve year old daughter there, and she was holding a sign that said, "My two moms take me bowling." And I don't know why that sign like had such a profound impact on me, but I was like, you know what? I'm out. I'm done. I'm going to go do something else. And uh, and that's when I came here. What was your personal feelings about gay marriage at the time? It was such a new concept. People were still mostly talking about civil unions. And I had, I think, in my younger days, such a, I had such a disposition toward compromise. I sort of like wanted to make everybody happy or felt like there was this world in which everybody could be happy. And so I think even being gay was so new to me, like sort of comprehending it and understanding it that like the idea then of marriage was, I I wasn't even sure how to picture it. I think that actually sort of growing up, going through the gay rights movement had a profound impact actually on the way that I saw marriage, because I think the most compelling vision that I got of marriage was from a lot of the sort of conservative side of the gay rights advocacy. Those were people who, you know, Andrew Sullivan, um, Jonathan Rauch, these were people who were talking about why it was essential for gay people to get married because the institution was so valuable to humans and and their flourishing. And that became, for me, just, it is now more my understanding of of marriage than in any other context is, is them talking about it. I'm curious a little bit about your upbringing because I think a lot of listeners to my podcast have trouble understanding even how people come to be Republicans or conservative Republicans or go down that road. What was the political background of of your life as a young person? I think like a lot of people, I had pretty conservative parents. They are not even now knowing so much more about sort of cultural conservatism and what it means. I can't say that I think that they are super culturally conservative. Like they're, they're not. When I was seven, we moved to a very small town in Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, sometimes the part people call the Alabama part of Pennsylvania. I grew up there. I grew up in a town of 800 people, all white and very rural. You know, we went to the small little church and I went to the, I went to Sunday school in the small little public school at the bottom of the hill that I walked to every day. Even there, I would say we kind of stood out for being my parents were both attorneys and they had a little law firm at the center of town, which only had a two-aisle grocery store, an insurance agency, and then my parents' little law firm. I think we still stood out a little bit in the town for almost being – progressive's not the right word, but maybe just not like we hadn't lived there all our lives. Less provincial, maybe. Yeah, we just hadn't – we didn't come from there yeah. in the same way. We kind of moved there. My mom had a loft – like she had an office inside the house because we were little. Uh, but then like our lives sort of shifted because at some point my mom kind of joined a bigger firm in the city and then – there became kind of talk of, well, maybe I should go to school in the city, and which was a 45-minute drive away. I would 
go to the local police department every day where a van would pick up the six kids from Perry County, the small county, so not even from my town, just the surrounding county. We'd all meet there at the police barracks, and then we'd take this van at 45 minutes to an hour into Harrisburg to go to school. And that is like the pivot point of my life, right? Because I was living in this small little town um, around a lot of people who were farmers and teachers, but I started going to school in a place where you know, most of the wealthiest people in Harrisburg sent their kids, and it was incredibly diverse. So I will tell you, the first day I went to school, there was a lot of Jewish kids, there were a lot of African-American kids, a lot of Cambodian kids, a lot of people whose parents were doctors at like Hershey Hospital um, who were visiting. And so they would, you know, so a lot of international students. And it was small, too. There was like 30 kids in a class. And the first day, I remember people saying to me, as they would tease the Perry County kids, like, do you wear shoes where you come from? And I wanting to completely play the stereotype, I guess, also asked one of the black kids if I could touch his hair. Like Steve, Steve, who's a good friend of mine. Uh, no, but like at the time, and he was very, um, he was nice about it. He said, sure. But it was like one of these things where at the time I had literally never met a black person. I had watched the Cosby show all the time and always wondered. But my the school that I went to then was very progressive. Kenyan. Well, not, all, not all Kenya, but the, but the high school, yeah, this, yeah. This, this this sort of private school that yeah, I went to. Yeah. Um, and it had PhDs teaching sort of the high school history classes and things like that. I had this history professor that I just adored, loved. He actually sent me an email recently, and it basically made my entire life because um, he read about something I was doing in the paper. But he was a pretty progressive guy. He and I would fight, like argue in these classes. And I would say, maybe I'm a born contrarian. Maybe it was the clash of like the small town values sort of and and culture that I was immersed in now sort of banging up against a much more progressive environment and how I sort of formed a lot of my intellectual self as a kid. I mean, a, you know, as a teenager, maybe in contrast to to the more progressive uh, school, I certainly stood out and was opinionated and liked to talk about it and fight it out and, like, you know, and argue with with my peers. And and I loved it. I loved debating stuff. I loved talking about things at the place where we most disagreed. And so I think I learned early on something about how do you try to persuade people? How do you talk to people with whom you disagree profoundly and do it in a way where you can keep the conversation going and be engaged in a way that feels like good and not terrible? There's some people who argue sort of just to hear their self speak. And there's some people who argue to persuade and actually to try to move the other side. Where do you think you were on that scale? Oh, I definitely, I wanted to persuade. Um, this was before like owning people was a thing, you know, you were just trying to get in the best one liner. I always enjoyed it because sometimes I think I was putting together what I thought, you know, as I was doing it. And so I, I, I enjoyed being challenged by people who made me think harder. I mean, I, I read a lot in high school, a lot of political books because these teachers would, they were so much smarter than I was, right? Like they, their arguments were better. They knew a lot more about it. And so I would go back and try to marshal my arguments and figure out why did I think what I think? And they really helped me do that. Did you find yourself reading conservative writers? Yeah, so to, this is, to, this is where my parents really came bulwark. in. Yeah, yeah my, my parents really came in with my mom was like, well, here's a book by Thomas Sowell. You know, here's, uh, have you heard of Margaret Thatcher? Let me tell you all about her. My mom's British. A lot of it was formed, yeah, in those stages where I was trying to be like, well, why do I think what I think? And um, and then I started, it's, it's even funny, actually, you know, my mom gave me Letters to a Young Contrarian by Christopher Hitchens, which if you picked up my version of that book, it is just like underlined. And I also at the time, there's like a series that's like Letters to a Young whatever, Letters to a Young Poet. And one of them is by Dinesh D'Souza. It's Letters to a Young Conservative, which is also heavily outlined. And um, at the time, 
like that that was a person who I was reading, you know, a young out of Dartmouth Dinesh D'Souza, who now now a felon and uh, and big Trump supporter. Uh, world is changing always. <laughs> yes. Did you continue on that sort of path of being a contrarian through college? Yeah. So Kenyon's a pretty progressive uh, place, although like most people from Kenyon, I am obsessed with Kenyon, think it's the greatest place on earth, like found my time there to be sort of the best four years uh, of my life. And anybody who is thinking about where to go to college, you should go there. It's amazing. Uh, but they have a political science department that's what I think among political scientists would be considered Straussian in nature. Um, there's a lot of these scholars that came out of the University of Chicago, like Alan Bloom, and they were acolytes of Alan Bloom, or Harvey Mansfield is sort of another um, hub of this type of thinking. And so that political science department there at Kenyon had a lot of those people from the University of Chicago. And so it's not fair to call it a conservative political science department, but it is it is one that comes out of a, I guess, more right-leaning school of thought. I think it, it probably turns out more center-right thinkers than you're in the political science department than the rest of the school combined. And and there's people from my class who like worked in the Bush administration. And so, yes, so I, I definitely continued to be a contrarian, but also I was pretty serious about political science in general and the classics. And, and I think I did write my honors thesis at my senior year, which I definitely never finished, but I wrote a lot of it before I, before I sort of threw in the towel. It was on sort of relativism and the denigration of the American liberal arts education. Uh, and at the time, this was sort of a big idea. I mean, I was basically just like cribbing from Alan Bloom, but it was this idea that uh, there was no objective truth and everything was equal and every culture was equal and we should all, there was no standard by which to judge anything. So what was your the rest of your path to Berman? That was it. I went right from Kenyon to Delaware. I mean, I, I took two weeks between uh, graduating and moving to Delaware and working there for three years. And then after being on the road with Rick Santorum and feeling like I learned a lot more about what conservatism meant in the world, right? When you're in college campus, you can be a campus conservative and you don't have to be very conservative to be a conservative on, a, on an American college campus. Uh, and so I think when I got out in the world and saw maybe what the way that that the interplay between culture and conservatism, what it meant sort of in a practical application, sort of different from what it meant to me theoretically in political science terms. But when I went to work there, it was, it was very Catholic. It was very Christian. And actually, those two sets of ideas actually would bump up against each other more than anything else, like institutionally within the institution. It was just clearly not the right, like the right environment for me. So I did my three years there, learned a ton, but also learned a lot about who I wasn't as a conservative. And um, who were you not? So I was not a social conservative. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there are elements of social conservatism and preserving things that that can make sense. And so I'm sympathetic to certain elements of it. But generally speaking, I was just I was not a social conservative and my conservatism was not steeped in any kind of religiosity, which I think is one of the key differences between me and I and my parents. Like I wasn't raised particularly religious. Like we went to church, but it wasn't uh, I, I would never argue anything on the basis of religion, that God says one thing or another. Sounds like you weren't a racial conservative in the sense of not wanting equality among the races. No, although I will tell you, I grew up in a pretty small town and I didn't see a lot of that. I saw a fair amount of people who were maybe in the same place I was where their life experience didn't lead them to encounter a lot of people of other races or cultures, but I did not see a lot of racism. Now, maybe I was too young and too unaware to sort of 
know all the time. And it typically is more of a problem where races are butting up against each other. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it was a totally homogenous environment, but there was just I, I just don't remember anything racial or racist about my upbringing and my parents. I mean, my mom was actually a little bit of kind of a civil rights person. Like she had kind of come through the 60s and been in her telling part of the civil rights movement. So I was I just felt like what I got early on was um, I didn't know a lot of black people, but I was I remember very well being taught about civil rights leaders and Martin Luther King with a great deal of these are the people you should aspire to be like. What was your lens on the 2016 primary and Trump kind of moving up through the ranks of the Republicans? How did you see that? I have paid no attention to Donald Trump my entire life. Like I've never read, I've never been interested in the page six type stuff. There, I would have no reason to engage with him. I know who he was. Is I never watched The Apprentice. I would have no interest in watching The Apprentice. I found him to be sort of a repellent figure, but like in a but in a totally innocuous, I'm not paying attention to you kind of way. I knew he was in one of the Home Alone movies in a brief cameo. Like that was, was yeah. yeah, it's like the extent of my <laughs> it's like the extent of my Donald Trump trivia. So when he got in, like. I did not pay attention to it. I was deeply invested in who was I going to choose between Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush? How was I going to make that decision? One of the Florida people. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I liked them both. They both brought different elements and had, you know, interesting ideas. And because I'm a policy wonk, like Jeb Bush is a real policy guy. And he had lots of interesting policy ideas. So did Marco Rubio. And these were guys who were deeply committed to immigration reform and trying to figure out how we solve this problem as opposed to use it as a cudgel to keep beating each other with. I didn't look up at Donald Trump until, like anybody, like everybody else, until it was almost too late. Like it was, he, he, you were writing him off as, as a kind of a lark. And then once he started to gain real traction was when I said, we have to do something. And I, I started working on everything that I could to sort of fight him and fight uh, fight his candidacy early on. Ads, I mean, everything that was in my sort of toolbox of things in the communication space, there was a huge market for it. There was a huge number of conservatives and the donors that I work with regularly who who wanted help pushing back. It was a totally normal thing to be a Republican who hated Donald Trump at the time. Be more specific about some of the things that you got involved in during that campaign. Well, it was kind of in stages, right? So there was the normal, there was sort of the early stage where it was like, okay, this guy's becoming a problem. He's eating into Jeb and Marco. These guys aren't getting traction. They all seem to be, they seem to be fragmenting and splitting. He's uh, nicknaming the heck out of them. He's nicknaming the heck out of them. If he doesn't show up to the, a debate, Fox, you know, everybody's following to him where he's going. I mean, I would say a fair amount of my work involved just shouting at the television. So that wasn't super productive, but yeah, we did a lot of that. Too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was also, I mean, like, why are you guys, what are you telling me? He won't come to the debate. So you're going to go where he's going. Come on. The amount of free time everybody was giving. Billions I mean, in, of dollars. When you're in the communication space, you're just sort of sensitive and attuned to like earned media and, and you know, pe media that people are not paying for. And he wasn't paying for anything and people were dying to have him on. They're carrying all of his rallies. I mean, when that stuff started, I was, I, be, I was becoming quickly radicalized because I was watching everybody participate in his ascendancy. There's a real sense of like blaming Republicans and they took a knee to him and they all kowtowed. And I'm like, okay, let me tell you what, this was a cultural phenomenon and problem and a big media problem. Then the Republicans were trying to stop it. I mean, like everyone I knew was trying to stop it. 
Certainly establishment Republicans. Certainly establishment Republicans. <laughs> yes. That's right. Which is your world, I think, to some extent. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a very dirty word these days, but it's uh, on both sides. It yeah. Is. But I would say, I mean, the establishment just means like, in my opinion, it just means people who are a little bit of have some institutional fidelity. They believe in the institutions of of both the government and in the country and are are responsible agents of those institutions. Yeah, I think we can honor them. So <laughs> so who are some of the people that you started to interact with that were leaders in this sort of anti-Trump movement? So I knew a lot of the people who were doing sort of the PAC side. So Tim Miller, uh, who was actually Jeb's spokesman, he with with some of the other folks from sort of Jeb and Romney world started a, a an R Principles PAC to push back. But honestly, I was kind of doing my own thing. I had my own little sort of anti-Trump projects that I was working on. Honestly, it wasn't until he won that I got involved in what I would now call, I wasn't a player. Let's just put it that way. I wasn't a player pre-2016 at all. I had worked at this firm. I had my clients who were corporate clients or think tank clients and the Never Trump movement, like that was, that was Evan McMullen's campaign. It wasn't what I was doing. I wasn't really playing in that space. I didn't know any of those guys then. And subsequent to the election, when you come to grips with this is the president that we have, what did you start to do? On the night that Donald Trump got elected, I was with all my lesbian friends. <laughs> and so it was like a funeral, like watching this thing happen. I hadn't smoked a cigarette in many months. We all were like, somebody had to run to the store and get a pack of cigarettes. We all had to, you know, kids were long gone in bed and everybody was just kind of staring into space. And I remember sort of saying to everybody, you know what, guys? This is going to be okay. This is going to be okay. Paul Ryan is a responsible person. The Republicans just had won the Senate and the House along with Donald Trump. I was like, these are responsible people. Our institutions are strong. Like I was saying these things as it was happening. Like I was the one kind of going, it is okay. It's going to be okay. This is this is not the kind of thing where he can just be terrible. And I was also kind of being like, and he's kind of a Democrat, guys. Like we'll probably do infrastructure first. He'll spend a ton of money. Like it, it'll be okay. I was doing the same thing, just wondering where would he actually land? Was it just a shtick? And I still have that somewhat in my mind. And he just seems to be playing this right-wing character or this, not even right-wing, it's whatever the populist crazy person that he is. It doesn't seem real. Right. It does not. It, it, and it, it, all, it, doesn't, I mean, it doesn't seem grounded in any particular philosophy or consistency no. or truth or, or it's just he has some bad associates and he's kind of gotten the idea that this is what helps him win. Totally. Yeah. 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 And no, some, he has some, some reflexes that are weird. Yeah. No yeah. core values. And so I, I was kind of like, look, this guy's a lightweight, no, no real values. He's sort of a, sort of a limousine liberal, like. I bet the de- I bet these the Dems are going to like him more than they think they are. It's going to be the Republicans that are so disappointed. I, I sort of hung out in that space for a few weeks. There was a lot of you know post game, but it wasn't that long before the Muslim ban. And and I know what I'm saying when I say Muslim ban. Uh, that it was intended to be a Muslim ban. Yeah, yes. like that that you know Not just a few countries that happen to have mostly Muslims. And look, there are legitimate things that President Obama talked about that are that are ways that you can talk about curbing terrorism and having a specific way that you look at certain countries where there is a lot of state-sponsored terrorist activity. The fact was he had stood on a stage and said, I'm calling for a ban on all Muslims coming to the country. So they couldn't walk that back. You couldn't put that genie back in the bottle. We knew who he was. When there were the protests at the airport and I could just feel myself 
siding with the protesters. And I will tell you, I usually don't feel in my heart like I'm siding with the protesters. I am mostly, uh, before the Tea Party movement, I always sort of would say, although uh, I would always just sort of say like, yeah, we're not really protesters on the right. Like we're not the ones that take to the streets. It's not really just kind of who we are. And I sort of feel that way generally. But I was like, I was like, oh, I kind of want to go down there. Like I was <laughs> mad too. I was watching people on TV who were like setting up these temporary stands to provide legal work. And I was like, who can I give money to who's doing that? Because, you know, they were just like detaining Americans, green card holders. It was awful. So that was the first thing that happened when I was like, you know what? I'm not sure this is going to go well. Pretty quickly thereafter, it was Charlottesville. Like, and I think that's that was like the real turning point for anybody who'd kind of hoped and look, it's totally fair for people to be like, I call bullshit on your thing. This guy was someone who who demagogued Barack Obama's birth certificate in this completely racist way. And like, how could you think that this wasn't who he was? I would say to that, in the same way I just never took Donald Trump seriously, I never took that whole thing seriously, right? Like he's some ridiculous person on television who's doing this ridiculous thing. Nobody takes this guy seriously. And I think the problem was is that once he was elected president, it became very clear the fact was he was now implementing policy that was literally having an impact on people's lives. He was putting Bannon and Miller in the White House and listening to them. That's right. That's right. That was the point at which what you saw happening was a lot of people saying, okay, I am now concerned about the country. I'm concerned about the state of the republic and its institutions, its norms, and what are we going to do to fix it? I suddenly found myself in a lot of room rooms with very sad Republicans. Um, and that is where I sort of first came in contact with, oh, there's Evan McMullen, there's Mindy Finn, here's Bill Kristol, uh, here's Linda Chavez and Mona Sharon. I didn't know them, any of them before. Uh, but I, I started showing up because I was concerned. What were you showing up for? What, what were there gatherings of the the disaffected yeah. on the right? There basically, is. yeah, it's literally called the meeting of the concerned. <laughs> it's a bunch of it's a meeting of concerned people. Just, yeah. just uh, I always call it the sad Republican meeting. And and in those early days, you know, it was a lot of people kind of trying to figure out whether or not we'd missed something about the party, uh, whether or not the party was different than maybe we'd always thought it was. By the party, you mean the party in the electorate? The Republican Party. Yeah, that's right. The voters. Yeah. The voters. Yeah. Um, I think that um, – and, and a lot of people are sort of operatives and so they work in Republican politics and would sort of fancy themselves as having, you know, kind of a finger on the pulse of who Republican voters might be and what might drive them or move them. And so you look at something like – calling for a ban on Muslims and you're like, well, you know, I don't think I don't think he survives this, you know, that's and then you see his numbers go up and you realize something is going on that I don't understand. Something's going on that I don't know. My initial feelings were in the room, you know, everybody's is he a symptom? Is he a cause? Um, and I said, well, look, let's find out. Like we should study this. Somebody should do uh, should understand like what percentage of the party are these reluctant Trump voters who voted for? And this is something people forget now. The vast majority of Republican voters voted for somebody else. Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush and Ted Cruz and um, – In the primary. In the primary. They were splitting sort of the reasonable Republican vote and there was sort of this – 30%. I mean, it wasn't that big. It was like, I think Trump got uh, like 32% in Iowa and some other sort of smaller number in New Hampshire. Uh, the biggest block, but only a plurality. Only but, a plurality. Yeah. That's right. He was not winning a majority of Republican voters. And so I think the open question was, and, and this is the thing that I, I knew in the early days that 
was the look, I, I fully did not expect Donald Trump to win the presidency. I absolutely thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. I was conventional wisdom all around. But in retrospect, you know, I look at like my parents and I think like these are not people who like Donald Trump. They do not think he is a good person. They're not like, yeah, he's our force first or even 10th or 12th choice. But Hillary Clinton, the extent to which Republicans out of just reflects muscle memory could never have pulled the lever for her. She is such a boogeyman. I mean, there is an industrial complex on the right devoted to hating the Clintons. And you can assess whether you think that's right or wrong, but that's just a fact. And so in a way that people were sort of even like like us, it sounds like you too, thought, eh, he'll probably be better once he's in office. He'll knock some of this stuff off. I just can't vote for Hillary Clinton. Like I'm going to take a, I'll take a shot. I sort of felt like there were a lot of people like that. And so like my question was, what can we learn about them? What is the percentage of people who are really there for Trump? And then how do you marshal what I assumed was a larger percentage of Republicans into uh, a future party or a future effort uh, to sort of move past Trump as quickly as possible? So what did you learn? I would say one of the biggest takeaways that I think helps explain what I think a lot of people just kind of blanket and say like, well, Republicans are racist, or there's this real racial element. Now, I would say pre-2016, I probably would have denied that the problem was nearly as bad as people thought it it was. I will say now, I think it is as bad as people think it is. But I would also say that part of the issue is people have really conflated Republican voters. Their number one priority is immigration. Was it before he came around, or did so, he make it the number one? Well, here, here's what it is. It is that terrorism and immigration are are one thing in people's heads on the right. They, it is they're it, so afraid of they're, the other. That's yeah yeah, but I mean like Trump was really helped out. The San Bernardino shooting happened. There was a couple there was the the truck I believe that drove into a group of people in New York. I think that's when he called for the temporary Muslim. I'm, I'm trying to remember like what I can't the, remember. Yeah. Like but there were a number of those instances. I remember being at a blackjack table in Vegas and the dealer telling me she was going to vote for Donald Trump and me asking why. And she was like, terrorism. I am much more, I think, open to this coming out of the gay rights movement and having talked to a lot of people about being gay uh, to people who are in their 60s or whatever. And just they had they, they had fear, right? They didn't have animus so much as they had fear. And I think if you decide that you want to give a charitable reading to your fellow Americans, there is a way to understand and I think a lot of older people are like this. And if you look at Trump's voting base, it is a lot of people over the age of 65 that when the world is changing fast and things seem scary, there is a willingness to, to sort of take a gamble on something that is outside the box or outside the norm. And it, it's not the kind of racism. These are not people who would who would ever who would say something racist, you know, but they are afraid and they've got some things in their minds that have kind of become conflated. Tell me more about sort of your activities. Like you've worked to create some organizations and and some movements. What are, what are you up to? Yeah, so I started with the research and then, um, you know, I met Bill Crystal and Linda Chavez and a bunch of these, Charlie Sykes, a bunch of these people on the right who um, were kind of trying to figure out what can we do? Is there anything we can do to help? And I think one of the, the earlier things that happened was once there was a special counsel that was appointed, one of the first things Trump started talking about doing was firing the special counsel, you know, a lot of saber rattling. And there were already sort of a number, not just on the special counsel, but on some other areas, sort of these 
affronts to the rule of law. Like the system was holding up well. A special counsel had been appointed. Jeff Sessions had recused himself. But there were clearly this like attacks on on the institutions. And so we we stood up a C4 called Defending Democracy Together. But as a project of that and probably our most well-known project was Republicans for the Rule of Law, uh, which did focus on protecting the special counsel's investigation from political interference. And a lot of that just meant taking all of the Republicans who say, look, you can trust Bob Mueller, president shouldn't fire Bob Mueller, and creating a lot of, because uh, this is what I do, a lot of explainer videos and, and things like that that were focused on um, you know, a lot of, hey, here's what happened with Nixon and why it was bad for the party, um, focused on connecting with Trump voters and and who were saying Trump should not fire the special counsel. I'm a supporter of his, but I don't think, uh, but if he does this, it'll be bad for the party. It'll be bad for the country. We sort of launched this campaign that I think was very effective because Republican support for the special counsel's investigation held steady at about 55% and then even ticked up a little bit. He never got Republican support on his side over the special counsel to the degree that allowed him to actually interfere with the election. It, it was politically implausible for him to do so. So tell me more about that Republicans for the rule of law. Like, did, did you spend a lot of money? Who was involved in it? Yeah, what? I mean, we spent a couple million dollars. It was Bill Crystal as sort of the chairman of the board. It was Linda uh, Chavez Mona Sharon, Christine Todd Whitman, you know, former governor, um, former Congressman Bob Inglis. So a lot of just Republicans and conservatives who wanted to do something. Like, I actually want to do something in this moment. And yeah, we spent a uh, couple million dollars at least trying to reach Republican voters. Uh, it was a big campaign. We also did another campaign called the Becoming American Initiative uh, with Linda Chavez. She was a Reagan appointee and she's an expert on immigration policy and focuses on you know expanding access to legal immigration. Uh, we had a great campaign uh, that we ran, which was uh, Reagan talking about how immigrants improve the country, uh, how valuable they are to the fabric. And at the end, he literally says that immigrants will make America great again. It's a great ad. We just won an award for it, actually. But you should check it out. So we have, and that one went viral. Um, Jose Andreas, like a bunch of people tweeted it. You know, we did a lot of things like that. We also we also launched one around trade. I mean, we were trying to sort of focus on these traditional conservative values of free trade. So we had Republicans fighting tariffs at TerribleTariffs.com. We had the Becoming American Initiative. And then we had Republicans for the rule of law. Because Republicans always think of themselves as the rule of law party. Um, that's supposed to be pretty fundamental to who we are. I mean, you get a lot of Republican institutionalists uh, and constitutionalists. And it was just crazy to see how quickly... Actually, I'll say this. In the early stages, so like one of the people that we used in the videos the most was like Trey Gowdy, who led the Benghazi hearings. But Trey Gowdy was saying all the time, hey, listen, if you're not guilty, act like it. Like, act like you're not guilty. And Lindsey Graham, before he got his body snatched, was was on the Judiciary Committee doing great work to help. I mean, they passed. So one of the big pieces of legislation, there was, we just call it the Protect Mueller legislation, but it was called like the Special Counsel something something act. Uh, but it passed out of the Judiciary Committee with a bunch of Republican support. Flake voted for it. Graham voted for it. Tom Tillis voted for it. Anyway, and, and so when something passes out of committee with that much support, usually the majority leader brings it to the floor. And so a big part of our push was to try to get McConnell to let let there be a vote on it. And honestly, if there had been a vote on it and Republicans had voted for it, as I suspect they might have, it, it would have been a different environment throughout the entire Mueller investigation. Because instead, everybody spent the whole time kind of being like, oh, is he going to fire Rosenstein? Is he going to fire? Yeah, nope, there goes Jeff Sessions, you know? And it was just a constant sort of state of him trying to be disruptive in some way. 
What do you make of the fact that it seems like both in Congress and in the electorate that Trump has kind of consolidated the backing behind him? And it feels like people like you and the other people you've mentioned are really in the sliver of a minority at this moment in political time. So I think that he has not consolidated his support among voters. I think he has consolidated his support among elected officials. And so this is what is crazy to me. What is crazy to me is that Trump is very much now the establishment. The Republican Party has lined up behind him. People kind of point to the recent emergency declaration vote as, well, look, you know, um, 12 people or 13 people, you know, bucked him. And I was like, that was a red line thing. Like, it's like everybody should have bucked him. Like that to me demonstrates when Ben Sass, the most constitutional conservative in the Senate, votes to allow that level of expansive executive of power that is in clear violation to the Constitution and the Senate's power, we've got a massive problem on our hands and a massive capitulation among Congress. And I also think there's been a lot of consolidation among the Never Trump movement such as it was. I mean, I think that, look, a big strain of the Never Trump movement was in relation when you, to- When you say consolidation in that, what do you mean? Do you mean- that they're holding up or that they're peeling off. And they're peeling the off. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. I think um, recently Eric Erickson, RIP, said that uh, he was going to go ahead and and yes. support Trump uh, this time around. And and it, and it's and you know you wrote this whole thing about how Trump had, had earned his support. And I think Eric is making the case, and it's one that I see a lot, and that you have to you have to pay attention to, that there was a fair number of the conservative never Trump movement was that they thought Donald Trump would act like a liberal, like that he was a sort of closet Democrat, that they couldn't see him as a conservative. And they, you know, especially on on the judges, not just the Supreme Court, but circuit court judges, everybody, you know, Republicans feel he sort of legislated like a conservative. He's given them a lot of conservative policy wins. They're the ones who I think have really peeled away. I think it's the people, the people who stick it out and still say never are the ones who did it for sort of character reasons. I've talked to a political scientist or two who thinks that there's a lot of overreaction to Trump that feels like in a lot of ways he is acting like a standard Republican and that if you ignore this character and crazy sort of superstructure around him or I don't know what you would call it, that why are people getting so upset? But you're clearly... I think in the category of his behavior is upsetting and his governing is upsetting as it is to me. How do you make that judgment? So I actually have some sympathy for that particular political science characterization because I think oftentimes Donald Trump is greeted, every single thing he does is treated with kind of a breathless outrage. And I think when when everything's an outrage, nothing is. And I, th- I think there's a certain amount, you know, Donald Trump will do something and people will point out, well, you know, Obama's policy was very similar and you never noticed it then and people kind of backtrack. And I think in some cases, there there's people you can make sort of, well, no, 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 there's differences on or the margins. Or you read the worst into some joke that he makes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, this and this just happened where he was at the RJC and he said something like, your prime minister to all the, you know, American Jews who, uh, you know, Netanyahu is very clearly not their prime minister, but he misspeaks all the time. He makes jokes all the time. Mostly they are bad and in bad faith, but like you cannot, you just cannot be this mad all the time about everything. He doesn't to try to 
keep your powder dry to some degree for the things that really do matter, because there are attacks going on on institutions, on the Constitution, where we really need to focus. And I actually, I've learned a real communications lesson from this, and it's a bad one. But it is that, look, you never should have one scandal. One scandal, people can take a lot of time to dissect and pay attention to. But if you have a thousand scandals, if you say something insane every day, you will constantly turn the media into a herd of cats and you've got a laser pointer and they are just chasing it like crazy and then they will stay away i think that's from, really kind of the core secret it to is. success that's it's everything just, it's pig pen nobody can focus yeah. nobody can focus on the things that matter and and i think that is his strategy and it is telling that he understands that about people but he's also clearly right because nobody has been able to find that sort of central discipline i think or at least monolithically there's been no ability to find that central discipline both on the congressional democrat side as well as the media side to really take him on what else should I know about defending democracy together and what you've been working on? I want to answer that question. But before I do, if you don't mind, I want to go back to the question you asked about the consolidating the voter support because yeah. I didn't answer that piece okay, of it. Sorry. So I actually think that it is not yet clear to anyone how much damage Trump has done to running off right-leaning independent voters and sort of moderate Republican voters uh, in the suburbs, the college-educated voters. These are the people who flipped those 40 districts, who voted for McCain, voted for Romney, and refused to vote for Trump. They may even have voted for Trump in 16. In fact, I think a lot of them did based on the research that I looked at. They kind of came home, thought it would be okay, but they walked in 2018, and they're not coming back. Not coming back until Trump is long gone, or the Democrats nominate Bernie Sanders. The Democrats, and I just wish the Democrats would look at their success and figure out how to replicate it because Connor Lamb and Abigail Spanberger and Alyssa Slotkin, these were people that college-educated Republican women and men, uh, but, but very much women, could vote for all day long. But they weren't going to vote for more progressive candidates. And so – There is a willful urge to not understand that on the progressive left right now, that they are – so excited about the opportunity or the way that the party has moved in their direction that they think that these ideas will sell everywhere. That's not the evidence of the congressional election in 2018. 2018 was about people fitting their district and winning it by the Democrats nominating really good candidates with really good biographies who played to where the district actually was. And we, we also won some elections on the left where we replaced establishment Democrats with with more progressive Democrats. And we're going to have to go through this complicated primary process, which may mimic the 2016 election. It might. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty worried about it on Democrats' behalf. And so to the extent that Democrats are ever willing to listen to me, I just – I always say the same thing, which is think about how you felt at 9 a.m. on November 8th, 2016, how confident you were, how sure – you were ready for your first female Democratic president. You were already celebrating. You were having your watch parties. You couldn't wait. And then think about how you felt at 9 p.m. when Florida is coming in and you realize this thing is turning on you. And I want you to hold the 9 p.m. in your stomach and remember it and play like you were always 10 points behind because the hubris that I already see from the left, the assumption that, I mean, everybody was dying for Donald Trump in 2016. Yeah, make him the nominee. We'll crush him. You are wrong about that. You don't understand the country. You don't understand the thin margins that you're playing on. And you better find a candidate that can pick up 
those moderate districts in the country, because that is the only way you're going to beat him, is on inches. You are not going to blow him out in a wave. It is on inches. Those those 40 districts that you switch, okay, congratulations. You won every single one of them almost by a breath, by hundreds of votes. It was not a wave. It was a grudge match. Well, I would say something a little bit different, which is I agree that you need a candidate who can win that middle, but you also need a candidate that can pull the left in. And so finding someone who can bridge the whole width of the Democratic and middle of the road electorate is what we need for the country because we can't really abide another four years of Trump because of what he's doing with norms and institutions and so on. And division. I mean, like, and divi- and that's, just, that's why and somebody, teaching our children the wrong thing. Yeah. I mean, this is like like my central issue with Trump. I can argue the policy and everything else. It is that he is a bad person. He is not a good person. He is not a decent person. And he, his appeal is to everybody has light and dark inside of them. And he appeals only to the dark and he exacerbates the dark and it is bad for the country overall. And so the person who can come in, and I sort of got uh, Barack Obama of 2008, the guy who ran, we got our friends in the red states, you know, the guy who wanted to unify the country. Now, look, I'd argue that he didn't legislate like that, but he ran like that. And and I think somebody has to run like that again and make people feel like we can make ourselves whole again because otherwise we are in a vortex of backlashes that'll, that lead to ruin. And I think actually the likelihood is that Trump gets reelected because the economy is fairly good. Yep. That's when presidents get reelected. Unless there's a recession, unless there's a, a, a war, it's going to be close because he's so unpopular personally. But he is he is a very big threat, as you say, to win again. Absolutely. I just I, I think that this the biggest thing I have to ch- I challenge uh, my challenge is fatalism. Uh, the Democrats is is just overconfidence and thinking like, no, we it's we got to go further to the left. I don't, I don't know if it's co- overconfidence driving that from what I hear yeah, and what yep. I, I think it's a true belief in what is right to do for the country. Mm-hmm. That's something that comes from someone like Sanders or Warren that may not be in accord with where the electorate actually is writ large or where a campaign run by Trump with billions of dollars, because he's going to have a a lot better, more serious campaign this time than he did last time. He's got the entire apparatus behind him this time. The RNC has already merged with him. He's got money. He's got the apparatus. He's got the power of incumbency. He has to, he can only be beaten by someone running a really good race with a really good story. Who would you like to see from your perspective nominated by the Democratic Party? And will you participate in trying to to help make that happen through through your work and through the friends that you have? I'm focused very much right now on a Republican primary to Trump. I mean, I, I sort of see my role as being somebody who can try to, you know, and this just comes from from working on gay rights within the party for a long time on gay marriage, on don't ask, don't tell. I just believe very strongly on the idea of you have to work within your own party to try to change things. Um, and that and you were leader of log cabin Republicans for a while. Yeah, right? for a long time. So I just I just in the immediate past board chair of the log cabin Republicans. You know, I did that for about a decade, and so I was there for don't ask, don't tell, and marriage equality. And so I did a lot of that work, and I I learned a lot of lessons from that work. And and one of them is is how important it is to have. Republican voices who are still speaking up and saying these things are wrong and trying to make change. And um, my hope is that I can help, whether it's Bill Weld, whether it's Governor Hogan, whether it's, you know, some young congressperson who decides I'm going to do this thing, uh, whether I can be a part of of helping them. Do you think that 
that there can be someone with enough support to get in debates to to take some shots that are effective at, at the president? Yeah. So, and this is where, um, you know, our research has come in really handy because one of the things that was clear all along is how soft Trump's support is. There's a dominant and I think pretty hard struck narrative at this point that Trump owns the Republican Party, that he's got 90% approval ratings and therefore, you know, nobody could ever challenge him. But if you look at the numbers, and this has been replicated now over and over again. We did it first internally, but then we've seen it just uh, both in national polls and in state level polls in New Hampshire and Iowa. There's somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of the party that would absolutely like to see an alternative to Donald Trump in 2020. Not necessarily that they would vote for that person because it depends who you give them. If you say it's Nikki Haley, it's even it's even higher. Like then they're excited, you know. Well, who would be um, your dream candidate to recruit into that? Well, my dream candidate would be someone who could win. Um, and so I think Nikki Haley could win. Do you um, think she could beat him? Yes, but I she, do. Do you think she has any impulse to, to try that mission? No, I don't. And I, I don't actually – actually, my, my fear is the opposite. My fear is that he does a swap out for Pence and with Nikki Haley yeah. to try to solve his women problem. Um, and, he and, is certainly capable of – out of the box moves like well, that. Well, yeah, he's a showman. What do you yeah. do when the ratings start to fall? Yep. You know, you yeah. introduce a new. I wonder popular if she character. would go along with that. Well, that's the question. Yeah, I, I don't know, but there's no, there's no way that conversation hasn't happened or been floated or that nobody's thinking about it. Um, She's the only one who sort of let leave on good terms. Well, he let leave on good terms, and listen, if I if I can pull on how Nikki Haley's popularity, so can they, and uh, and they know. Like, what do you do when somebody is shows is the one person who, with the name recognition right now at this moment without running, can beat you out of hand? <laughs> what do you do? You bring them in is what you do, right? You don't leave them out there to potentially be persuaded to run against you. Yeah. Okay, so that's my that's my theory. Look, I am a big fan of Ben Sass. I've been a little disappointed lately, but I think that he he's a principled guy who I would I would love to see run. But honestly, I like Governor Hogan a ton. Governor Hogan, if you had to match somebody who was a little bit lab-grown for me in the Republican Party, it would be somebody like him. He said he wasn't going to run, but it seemed like That's a- That's not true. He didn't say he wasn't going to run. Well, I heard it that way. No. But, but But I also heard it as, well, at least right now I'm not. So what he said was that he didn't think right now Trump could be beaten. Mm. Um, but if he thought he could, he'd get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think- I think that. And can you show him information that makes him think <laughs> that he can come in? Uh, yeah. So I've, I've. What a, what a story that would be. I mean, just a serious challenge to him that was, that like Lyndon Johnson faced in in '68 or something. That's right. Would be a huge deal. It would be a huge deal. Something that people don't know about Governor Hogan is that his father was the first congressman, Republican congressman, to vote to impeach Richard Nixon. And Governor Hogan's been mentioning that an awful lot lately in his in his inaugural speech and, and other places. And I think that he understands as the second most popular governor in the country who won by 13 points in a blue state with the tons of female votes, tons of African-American votes, tons of African-Americans votes when he was running by a, a previous past chairman of the NAACP. <laughs> that is a guy who That's knows a guy how to- who, And if he won the primary- would have a very, very good shot at winning the general. Very good shot at winning the general. And I, and I think people are saying, well, there's no way he could win a primary. But here's the deal. Here's what he could do. Let's say it's let's say it's true. Let's just, I'll stipulate. It's tough to beat an incumbent. What he can do is get over the 30% threshold pretty quickly, I think. I mean, I think he can fill that vacuum of the, of the 40% of Republicans who would like to see an alternative. And he can say, 
he can say, look, I'm credible and I'm here to lay down a predicate for the future of the Republican Party. This is what Reagan did when he challenged uh, Ford in in, uh, 76 and he laid the groundwork for the Reagan revolution. And I'm really invested in a primary challenger because one of two things is going to happen in terms of the path for the Republican Party. We are either going to become a party of Trumpism, right, that even when Donald Trump is gone, there are people who are still trying to run the party like Trump did. Or we will become the Republican Party of the future that uses its free market energy to solve the 21st century's most intractable problems, whether that's healthcare or uh, climate change, and and ha- bring our ideas to the table and immigration. I mean, like I just the idea that we think of ourselves as the party of innovation and human potential and human flourishing, and that is not how we talk anymore. And so I I want somebody to come and make that pitch. And, and make it effectively that so that that can be our new path for a younger generation. Or one of the two major political parties is going to sort of fall off an eroding cliff into sort of a nativist, authoritarian, not responsible enough to govern party. I mean, it's interesting that the Republican president, you never hear him talking about the virtues of capitalism, really. I mean, there are a lot of values that the Republican Party brings to this country that are valuable. You don't hear him talking about policy, like you mentioned, that can be improved over democratic ideas by using incentives and things like that that make a difference. Yeah, you don't hear him talking about virtue ever or no, anything virtuous. No, well, he's not, he's not virtuous either publicly or privately, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. One of my biggest disappointments was to see that Republicans had run on repealing Obamacare for about three election cycles and were talking about how they were going to repeal and replace Obamacare. When that vote came in the Senate that John McCain was the deciding factor, if he hadn't done that, and they had repealed Obamacare, they didn't have anything to replace it with. Like that to me is, that is not the party that I know is a party of ideas, right? It is so irresponsible. You know, you want to replace Obamacare? Great. What's your plan? Show me your plan. Let Let people vet your plan to just have run against it. And then at the moment of truth to have nothing to replace it with, to me, that was the disappointment because that meant the Paul Ryan sort of phenomenon of we're going to be the group that, that thinks hard about policy and figures out how to solve these intractable problems. It was just all, it was just nothing. Sarah, it's, it's a great honor to talk to you. I'm really enjoying this. What, what's a question I should have asked that I failed to? You could ask me if I'm optimistic or pessimistic. Well, are you optimistic or pessimistic? It's a good question. So I am relentlessly optimistic. Is that true or is yes. that just like no, it's true. I have to be? No, it's true. <laughs> I, I'm pretty obnoxious about the optimism. I mean, I, I find one of the greatest things about being kind of Bill Crystal's sidekick is that I get to be in rooms with a whole bunch of people that I know of but have never gotten to meet before. And, you know, everybody's pretty down. Everybody's pretty bummed out. And I I think just whether it's by virtue of being, you know, usually 25 years younger than a lot of these people, I kind of come in there with my with my energy and try to say like, but hey, wait a minute. I, I'm a big fan of yours. I've watched you all these years. Like, this isn't who we are. Like, we can fix this. You're so-and-so. Like, you're a big deal. We can do something about this. And and we should try. I mean, there is value in trying. Just don't, don't just tell me it can't be done. Of course we can do something about this. Is there young leadership on campuses that's, that's Republican and anti-Trump? Is there energy there? I, I know my side. I know there's a ton of energy across the spectrum on the progressive side. What's going on on the Republican side? Yeah, so this is where I really feel like we're losing kind of a generation of voters because the energy on the Republican side on campus is kind of two places, at least in my opinion. I don't spend a lot of time on college campuses these days, but it's kind of on the Charlie Kirk 
uh, Candace Owens, Turning Point USA. Are you familiar with these? These are all mysteries to me. Oh, these are – oh, this is terrible. These. Yeah. This is like uh, the real grift on the right where you've got these young people who've convinced I think probably a bunch of older conservatives who understand that, that – universities tend to be these bastions of liberal thought, and they are there to sort of wave the Republican flag, which at this point is just a straight up Trump play. And so the biggest institutional factor on the right is, and, and a lot of it is like kind of the the owning the libs, trolling kind of mentality. I will say Democrats don't do themselves any favor by- Anti-political correctness sort of stuff. Well, yeah, that's right. Or really free speech, I think, is probably the big motivating issue. And, and here's where I would- I would side with conservatives intellectually, but like temperamentally be like pretty annoyed about it because it's it's like I'm not trying to want to go to bat for Milo uh, Yiannopoulos, you know, but what I do want is for just ignore like the idea that you're going to burn Berkeley down because Milo Yiannopoulos is going to speak there too. I mean, this is what this is what creates this sort of culture war around this stuff and 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 just turn your back on him. Yeah, turn your back or make a better argument. I mean, that that's sort of what you have to do. Where I think the future of the Republican leadership is, though, is kind of in the 35-year-old Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, Will Hurd, Elise Stefanik. There's this handful of of congressional Republicans um, and then sort of maybe Ben Sass in the Senate. But there's this handful of congressional Republicans who kind of hung in there in 2018 and did so not as Trumpy candidates. They ran for their districts. They are forward-looking. They are exciting. I'm just – cribbing here. I don't know this for sure, but I think it's probably pretty miserable being a Republican for them with Trump at the top of the ticket because they're all in swing districts. I look to people like that to try to to build a foundation for the new party. And there's a real sort of business community, young sort of young gun group that I think could do something and be effective, but none of that infrastructure exists on the right yet. And so when you ask me, what am I doing at Defending Democracy Together? I think I am looking for all the ways in which you build a supportive infrastructure for institutions on the right that are non-Trumpy, that can take us in a different direction. Great to talk to you today. Thanks. Anything else you want to say? No, it's great. Mm, Okay. Thank you. That was Sarah Longwell at Berman and Company. She's at bermanco.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.